Hey, good morning, 11 o'clock. How are we doing at Rocky Peak this morning? Hey. Wow. That never happens. I don't know what they put in your coffee this morning, but let's do more of that. Well, welcome to Rocky Peak this morning, whether you're here in the Worship Center, whether you're one of my rowdy friends over there in the Ridge, although it seems like the Worship Center is giving you a run for the rowdiness factor. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, if you're here for the very first time, special welcome to you. We're so glad you're here, and we hope that the Lord meets you in a new and a powerful way. I'm excited this morning. It's already been such a powerful weekend at Rocky Peak. It started on Friday night. How many of you joined us for fight night over on Friday night? That was just a really powerful time to learn how to deepen our relationship. It's been incredible what the Lord's already been doing through the last couple services. I'm excited to open up the Word. I'm excited to learn and grow alongside you this morning. So with that, inside your, message, inside your program, there is a message note sheet. It's a green and white tool to be able to help you follow along with the time of teaching. Also be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray. We're going to jump right in. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that right now we are in the presence of the living God. Father, we thank you for the purpose of why we're gathered here this morning. It is to experience more of your transformation. Father, we thank you that we got to experience that as we were singing those songs, as we were declaring these truths of who you are and how you see us. Father, we thank you that that's going to be true as we open up your living and active word where you meet us, where you transform us through your presence and your authority. And so, Father, the prayer this morning is that as we listen to your word, as we are spoken to by the spirit of the living God, may we leave here differently than how we came in. Father, may we leave here more like your son. May we leave here with a deeper passion, not just to know you, but to live like you in our world. Father, may we leave with a deeper joy that even though we're not perfect, even though we drop the ball, even though we don't know everything, we know that Jesus died and lives again. And that truth changes us for all of eternity. Father, as I often pray as a communicator, may I become much less during this time. And may you, as the author of our word, the king of all of our days, as the one true Christ, may you become much, much more this morning. We love you, Father, and we are ready to listen to what you have to say. In your son's name, we all said, amen. So this morning, I'm going to go ahead and continue the series we've been in for the last five weeks or so called Pursuing God One-on-One. -on -One. And if again, if you're here for the first time, we're really thankful that you're here, and this is a really exciting time to be joining us here at Rocky Peak. Now, the heart behind this series is something that we often say here at Rocky Peak, and that's that God has an epic vision for your life. And this vision that God has for your life is bigger than simply being saved so you can go to heaven one day. See, God's vision for you is that you would be transformed at your core character so that you would become more and more like his precious son, Jesus. And so we experience this transformation by regularly being in the presence of God. And in this series, we've been taking a look at the fact that the story of the Bible, the story of scripture, is really the story of the presence of God, how we were created to be in that presence, how as a human race, through our rebellion and our sin, 
we lost the presence of God. How through his great love for us, God initiated a rescue plan through the work and the life and death of Jesus, his son, which restored us back to the presence of God. We have also seen how this pursuit is now a two-way pursuit. How God initiated, but now has us transformed people. We have the opportunity to follow the model of God and to pursue his presence in our daily lives. So this series and the life group study that accompanies this series is devoted to learning how to develop a one-on-one rhythm of relationship with God in our individual lives. Because we can experience God's presence and transformation in a large group like this. We can experience it in a small group that many of us gather in throughout the week. But the most important place, the most powerful place to experience God's presence and therefore his transformation is in our one-on-one relationship with him. So that's what this whole series is all about. Now this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue the dialogue I started last week in the question of how do we develop a one-on-one relationship with the written word of God, with the Bible itself. And if you were here last week, we talked about the first we need to answer the why. Why would we want to regularly be in the Bible to begin with? And to quote Michael from a couple of weeks ago, if we don't have an honest and a compelling reason or an answer to our why, then we are not going to do it. And so there in the front of your note sheet, I put our key scripture from last week so that we remember our why. In 2 Timothy 3, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. Do you remember that? Would you underline that? Would you put a box around that just to remind us? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Remember, each of those four aspects is an opportunity for transformation so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so a quick recap from last week, what it means that is to be God-breathed is that God breathed his life into the scriptures that the written word of God is living and active and God has put his presence within his scripture and with his presence comes the authority of God. That was the key word we talked about in length last week, that God and only God has the authority to give life and God and only God has the authority to transform our lives. And so if you missed last week for whatever reason, I wanna highly encourage you, would you jump on YouTube, whether by going to YouTube directly in searching the Church of Rocky Peak. You can find it on the Rocky Peak app right there. Would you listen to that message? Because it really is a part one to what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so with that said, now that we've answered our why, we have a bigger vision for the word. The next question is how? How do we roll up our sleeves? How do we read the Bible? How do we really dig into it and get into it for what it's worth? And so we're gonna talk about some practical steps and tools this morning, but before we do, we need to keep one big picture principle at the front of our minds. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled One Key Focus, and your fill-in is this. The Bible is written for you. The Bible is written for you. And would you underline and put a box around the word you? 
And hear me clearly on this. Take this personally. I am talking directly to you through this. I am not talking to the person sitting next to you necessarily. I'm not talking to the person behind you. This is you. The Bible, the holy word of God, his presence and authority was written to you. And we need to start this way because often we don't see it that way. But the truth of the matter is the Bible was written for you and therefore you are capable of understanding what's in it. And this is such a key point that I want to be able to illustrate this well. And to do this illustration, I need to invite a friend of mine, Josh, to come out and help me. Would you give it up for my friend, Josh? He's awesome. So let me illustrate this point in this way. Up until very recently, uh, for the last several years, I had been a, a professional DJ on the side. Specifically, I had been what's called a corporate DJ. That It's not that people came to listen to me play, but I got sent out to conferences or to seminars or to gatherings or when they're trying to impress clients. I would get sent to them, and so my job was to tailor a, music set, a musical set or an environment based on that specific audience. And specifically for what I did, the difference between a good DJ and a bad DJ is that a bad DJ would come in guns blazing and play whatever they wanted to play. A good DJ would do the detective work and learn an audience, understand what would work for a specific audience, because no two audiences are alike. What worked for one is not guaranteed and likely wouldn't work for another one. And so frankly, that made it a lot of fun. I enjoyed the detective work, I enjoyed the discovery process. Now, with that being said, what I also discovered is they are, there are a short list, a golden list, if you will, of certain songs that will work no matter the audience that will work no matter who you're playing for. I don't understand it. The only explanation is that these songs have been touched by the Lord himself because somehow they transcend all of humanity. And when somebody hears this, these songs, they can't help but have a good time. Josh, can we give them an example? right? Don't you just feel better now that you heard that? I just need to hear the piano intro and it works. Now I'm telling you from empirical evidence, I have played this song in so many different audiences. I have played it for groups of teenagers. I have played it for 50, 60 plus crowd. I have played it in different states. I have played it to different cultures. I have played this song for a couple of venues where 90% of the thousands of people there were not English speaking first and yet it still worked. <laughs> Whenever you hear that song, you sit there and go, this is for me. This is my jam. Josh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And so the point I'm making through that illustration is that's the truth of your relationship with the Bible. Whatever your background, whatever your race, whatever your gender, whatever your story, wherever in the United States or in the world that you grew up in, whatever the type of family you grew up in, whatever the values you have held, whatever your successes, whatever your failures, whatever it may be, the written word of God is for you. See, I like how Chuck Swindoll puts it in your note sheet. This is a good time to point out that the study of God's word is for everyone. 
God doesn't limit the explanation of his word to certain specialists. Rather, God's word is to be learned, applied, obeyed, and passed on and on and on. Everyday people, including parents who teach their kids, are all part of his plan. Searching the scriptures isn't restricted to any specialized group. The scriptures are accessible to anyone and everyone. And the reason why we need to start with this is because there are many of us who have had a hard time believing that. There are many of us who have tried to open up the Bible and have felt overwhelmed. Have you ever felt intimidated as you try to read the Bible? We have felt overwhelmed because it doesn't make sense. We have felt overwhelmed because we don't understand what is going on. We have felt overwhelmed because we don't know where to start. We have felt overwhelmed because it feels like other people are getting this and I'm not. So is there something wrong with me? Am I not smart enough? We have felt overwhelmed. And I've said this before that the number one reason I truly believe this, that many Christ followers are not in the world of God is not because they don't care, but it's because they're intimidated by it. And so as we talk about rolling up our sleeves and getting in, we need to keep this at the front of our mind. The Bible is for you. And how do I know that? Because God has given you in your life a teacher to teach you and reveal the Bible to you, and that is the Holy Spirit. See, when you gave your life to Jesus in a beautiful act of repentance, not only did his death and resurrection cleanse you of your sins, not only did it restore you back to the presence of God, but he gave you himself. He gave you his spirit to now live and dwell in you. And the role of the Holy Spirit in your life is to lead you, is to teach you, and to reveal the scriptures to you. See, the scriptures are the primary tool that God uses for our transformation. Therefore, God would not keep you from that tool. So not only has he given you the Bible, but he has given you the spirit to help teach you the Bible, to reinforce that Christ follower, this is for you. This isn't in your note sheet, but if you want to write down the reference, John 14, 26. I like how Jesus puts it when he talks about the Spirit. He says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have, been, I have said to you. So Christ follower, as we dig in and look at how do we read the Bible, please rest, and that is a very intentional word, please rest in the fact that not only is the Bible for you, but God has not left you alone to figure it out on your own. He has given you his spirit which will be your teacher and will reveal the scriptures to you and one last thing on that inside your program we made these little bookmarks with one of my favorite descriptions of the holy spirit these are for you to be able to put inside your bible or anywhere else where you need this reminder for god has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity but one of power of love and of self-discipline this is you because of the spirit that lives in you. So with that, now that we transition, we want to begin to ask, if we're going to start to learn how do we read the Bible, there are three core steps in which the Holy Spirit uses to help us understand, to help us read, to help us observe what's going on. Now, if you've been doing your life group study, you've been introduced to these three steps. Last week, we focused a lot on the first step, and the next two weeks are going to focus in depth on the second and third one. And so your study's going to go deep. I'm going to simply introduce them here this morning and do a basic explanation of that. So there on your note sheet, you've got a section titled, Reading the Bible, the Big Three. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to use a section of Scripture to be able to apply these steps to. Again, if you did your study this week, you spent a lot of time in the first chapter of Philippians. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be in Philippians chapter 1 with just the first 11 verses. We're going to read through it once just to get familiar with it. And then as we go through these steps, leave your Bibles open, leave your apps on just so we can come back and refer to it. So open them up. Turn them on, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians is in the New Testament, the second half of our Bible. Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be starting at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify how I I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So that's going to be our passage. Now let's begin to discuss these steps and we'll be applying it to this passage. So there are your note sheet. The very first step to reading our Bible, step one is observation. And the goal of observation, this is your next villain, is to observe the facts. So meaning, the goal of the first step is to pay close attention, that is key, is to pay close attention to what the writer is actually saying. The goal of this step is to not make assumptions, but to carefully look at every word and every phrase that is is used. And the key to doing this step well is something that is completely countercultural to so many of us. The key to doing this step well is to slow down. We cannot observe well at the speed of light. If we are going to observe well, then the goal is to slow down. Now, I got to say, for me, that is difficult. I'm a speed addict. I move at the speed of light. And not only that, I feel that I can accomplish things competently at the speed of light. And many of you can relate to that, can you? But one of the traps and the dangers of the fact that I am a speed addict is that it has created a need for instant gratification in my life. If I don't achieve a goal in record time, then I quit or I get frustrated. And we see this in our culture. See, so many of us would say, I would want to lose lose 5, 10, 15 pounds, but we would also say, I want to lose them in the next 20 minutes. (laughs) 
And we see this in other areas of our culture. Those of us in marriages, we would say, yes, I want a deeper marriage, or I would like my current marriage to be fixed. But also many of us would say, but I would like to be able to read the back cover of a book and to be done with it. We see this with parenting. There's many of us that would like to say, what is the one blog or article headline? I don't want to read the whole thing. What is the one headline that's going to tell me the one thing I need to say to my kids and they're going to be perfect angels from now on? And like I mentioned above, we get so used to this need for instant gratification that when we don't receive what we want instantly, how do we feel? Frustrated. We feel disappointed. And what does that often result in? We quit. Have you ever quit anything because you weren't instantly good at it? See, we struggle with this, and there's many of us Christ followers that that was our attitude towards the Bible, that we opened up the Bible once and immediately weren't Bible scholars and then closed it and quit. And so the very first step to learning to read the Bible is to observe what is already there. And observation does not happen at the speed of light. In fact, transformation does not happen at the speed of light. We experience God's transformation through his word when we slow down. And so for me, especially with this first step, environment is key. If I'm going to learn how to read the Bible the right way, then I need to learn how to observe. And the first thing I need to take note of is my environment. Because am I trying to read it while I'm trying to do 10,000 other things and running around? And that's a trap for me. So what I had to do is I had to learn to start reading the Bible in an environment that forces me to slow down. I sit down at my kitchen counter. I sit down with the Bible, and I would highly recommend that you always sit down with something to write with, whether it's a journal or something digital like Evernote or the notes program on your phone. And also for me, and this is just for me, I often sit down with a cup of coffee. Do you know the logic behind that? I can't rush drinking a cup of coffee. In fact, I set it on the highest setting on my Keurig machine to force me that I can't rush through this or that's going to be painful. And so then what does it mean to observe? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can do this. We talk about this in the life group study. One key tool that you can do is by asking a reporter's questions. And if you think about it, reporters often were governed by a series of questions which were just getting to the facts. They were those five W's, who, what, when, where, and why. Sometimes how creeps his ugly head in there, but we're going to leave him out for this purpose. But who, what, when, where, and why. And that is a great way to begin to learn to observe what is there. So for example, let me give you a couple examples of what this may look like. If you were reading scripture, and you would ask the who question. A couple of questions you can be asking based on this is who is writing this? Who is the author of this letter and this book? And who are they writing to? Who is the intended original audience? Because then that begins to give us a, a deeper visual. And the next question is what? And that's simply looking at the words. What is being said? What are the key words? What are the key phrases? Are there certain words I don't understand that aren't common in my language? That's an example of what. Then there's the example of when. When was this written, both in history in what year is this taking place? Another easy when is when does this take place in the Bible? Does this take place in the Old Testament? 
Does it take place in the New Testament? Does this take place when Jesus was alive and doing his ministry? Does this take place in the time of the church? That affects how we understand the Bible. And the next question is where? Literally, where are they? Are they in Jerusalem? Are they on the coast? Where is the intended audience? Where is the author of this? And the next question is why? Why did they write this? Why is this part of the Bible? What is a central theme? What is a purpose behind this? And so that happens in observation. As we're reading, we're looking for these W's, the who, what, when, where, and why. Now take note of this. You are not always going to find answers to those W's, and that is okay. A big part of being good at observing is observing what you do know and observing what you don't know. That is a big part of it and we'll deal with what we don't know in the later two steps. But as we begin this step, remember, it's simply observing what is already there. And so let's apply this real quick. So let's go back to our passage. And to make it a little bit easier, we're just gonna look at the first two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a few seconds, look at that. Just observe, you are not giving it meaning, you are not interpreting it, you are not applying it. This step is simply observe what's there. What do you see? Now, as I observe this, I don't see all five of those W's, but I see a couple, of, a couple that jump out to me. The first one I see is a couple of who's. We see at the beginning, Paul is identifying himself as the author, and he's identifying his companion, Timothy. We also see another who, who is receiving this letter. He says, to all of God's holy people in Christ. Okay, so Christ followers, but we also observe that he also identifies a different level of the audience together with the overseers and deacons. Now, do you remember how I said I would likely have something to write with? I would probably make a note of overseers and deacons because I don't know what that means because that's interesting, that catches my attention, but I'm not in the step where I try to figure this out. Right now, I'm just observing. Paul goes on, and in that, he gave us a where, right? He gave us that in Christ Jesus at Philippi. So again, I would probably make a note of that. For many of us, we would probably read that and go, I have never heard of this city before. For others, maybe we've heard them, and again, it's gonna raise questions. What do I know about Philippi? What should I know? What is going on at this time? And then there's a couple of what's that jump out at me. The first one is the fact that he uses the word holy. And depending on your religious upbringing, that word can mean different things, huh? For some of you, holy was used to mean the spiritual elite, the best of the best. For some of you, holy was meant to mean every Christ follower, everybody that's given their life to Jesus. I look at that and go, well, that's an intentional word. I'm not filling in meaning yet, but I would make a note of that. Holy, the other one, like I mentioned, is overseers and deacons. I'll come back to that, but see, all I'm doing is observing what's already there. And as I observe what it's already doing, even though I don't have answers to all of my questions, for me, it's already making a clear, a much clearer visual picture as to what's going on. I can visualize this in a, lot, in, in a bigger way. 
I can visualize Paul writing this to Christ followers in the city of Philippi. And maybe I don't know much about Philippi, maybe I don't know much going on, but now I have a basic understanding of where we're gonna go here. So that's what's key about it. So the first step to read our Bible is the step of observation. The second step there in your note sheet is the step of interpretation. And the goal of the interpretation is to understand the author's message for his original audience. To understand the author's message for his original audience. Would you underline or put a box around the word original audience? We need to make a key distinction here. The Bible is written for you. The Bible is written for us. It is God's word to us and it is relevant to us as we sit here today, 2018, Chatsworth, California, the Bible is for you. However, we were not the original audience the Bible was written to. We need to understand that separation, that the Bible, the message of Jesus, the transformation transcends all times and culture and space, but they were writing, the original authors were writing to a familiar audience, to an audience that knew the realities of their world, the realities of their culture. And if you think about it, when you're communicating with someone who knows your realities, you don't have to do a lot of explanation about what everyday life is like, right? And so often for us, much of what we don't understand isn't explained because to the original audience, they completely understood what was going on. Let me illustrate it this way. So I've born and raised out here in the San Fernando Valley, West Coast, best coast to the end of days, right? One of the things that makes the West Coast the best coast is that we have been blessed with In-N-Out Burger. In-N-Out, In-N-Out, that's right. In-N-Out is proof that God is good and God loves his people. Now, if I were communicating with any of you about In-N-Out, would I have to explain to you what In-N-Out is? No, I could say In-N-Out and you would completely understand. I likely wouldn't add in the text message, hey, meet me at In-N-Out. It is a burger establishment where they use ingredients that are always fresh, not frozen. They use real ice cream in their milkshake. It is amazing, they wear white, it's got great fries. Do you see, I don't need to do that, right? because you understand what I'm talking about. Now, if I was writing to a friend of mine that lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and all I said was in and out, they would be confused, wouldn't they? Because they don't have a frame of reference for that. They don't have in and outs in Tulsa, and the, poor Tulsa. <laughs> but hasn't the reverse happened to you too? where somebody has mentioned a restaurant or a place that's in a specific region and you have no idea what, I'm ta- what they're talking about. I've been doing this at all the services, it's been fun. For many of you, it's like if somebody mentioned Cracker Barrel, or many of you, woo, there's one. If some of you, from Texas, right? Okay, there it goes. <laughs> Cracker Barrel, or Shake Shack or something along those lines. Now, some of you understand what I'm talking about. The majority of you glazed over because you're like, Drace just saying words right now. I don't understand what's going on. 
So the reason I illustrate it is we need to make this distinction. To read the Bible well, we have to do interpretation because it is for us, but because we were not its original audience, that means there is backstory and a bigger picture that we need to understand if we are going to clearly understand God's message to us. Because here's the danger. If we do not learn how to do interpretation, then our default reaction as sinful human beings is to take the Bible and interpret it through our reality. And so now my reality becomes the reality of the Bible. The way I see the world in my filters now becomes the reality of Jesus and how he sees the world. An example of that is when I came to the Lord as a teenager, and for several years, I often would hear a teaching on how Jesus cleared the temple courts. And when I would picture that, I would picture the temple courts looking very similar to the patio at Rocky Peak. I assumed, well, the temple is like a church, right? And so when I would picture Jesus doing this, I would picture him flipping the cafe table, knocking over the first impressions booth, angrily driving the golf cart around, you know, saying, (laughs) sinners. And then several years ago, we were in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and Michael was teaching on this passage, and he painted an accurate picture of the temple. Even in size, he showed me for the first time that the temple was three football fields by five football fields. He began to lay out what it was actually like, this Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and I realized I'm wrong. And how did I get to this wrong image? Because I took this story and rather than understanding it within its own culture, I interpreted it through my reality. And the danger is that we often do that. And when we do that, the language we use at Rocky Peak is that we now place filters on the Bible on who Jesus is. These filters twist and distort not only the message of the Bible, but how we picture Jesus. We filter him based on our own upbringing and our own experience. Experience. We filter Jesus based on what culture and society says is now okay or not okay. We filter Jesus based on our politics and our political parties and leanings. We filter Jesus based on our own desires, what I want to be right, what I want to be true. We could go on and on and on, but what happens when we filter Jesus, when we don't learn to interpret the word, is we create a Jesus in our own image. And that's a dangerous place to be. Let me give you an example of this. When I was in high school, I remember I was a new Christ follower, and I don't remember where I found this, but I came across a painting of Jesus. You've seen many of these different depictions and paintings of Jesus. And one thing really struck me about this painting, it didn't look like any way I had pictured Jesus. See, I remember it pretty vividly that this Jesus was standing on a beach, and he was kind of tall, thin, and lanky. And he was very light-skinned, and he had very light hair, very blondish hair. He had his beard, and he's in this like bright white robe with a purple sash going across it, and he's holding a sheep, you know, because he's the lamb of the world, so we always have to depict him holding sheep. And I remember when I looked at that picture, what struck me was, you know, that doesn't look like how I've pictured Jesus. That looks like a surfer. And I dubbed that picture Surfer Jesus. 
And I was grateful because as a young believer, I had great pastors and life group leaders in my life that had been teaching me how to see the Bible for, through a proper lens, to remove the filters and see it. And what really struck me as I looked at that picture was what's wrong with this is nothing about this picture makes him look like a Jewish Middle Eastern man. He looks like somebody from Southern California. And that is how somebody interpreted Jesus through their own filters. And so in your life group study this week, you're gonna dig into this deeply. You're gonna dig into seven rules of interpretation. And that may sound intimidating, but the truth is these rules are actually pretty simple and pretty easy to put into practice. For our time today, I just wanna focus on one of these, and that's a film that you've got there. When it comes to interpretation, context is key. When it comes to interpretation, context is key. Now, context is the discovery of what is the bigger story or what is the backstory behind what I am focused on right now. And so, for example, when it comes to reading scripture, often our temptation is to have these verses stand on their own. Context would be asking the question, what is the bigger, the bigger picture of this chapter, of this book, of the entire Bible. It's also asking the question, what is the backstory of what's going on culturally and socially and at this time of history? Because if we don't have the proper context, and again, we put it through our context, it can radically alter the meaning. Let me illustrate it this way. So let's imagine we've got two people. One is in Los Angeles, one living in Manhattan in the heart of New York City. Now let's say both of these people were reading the same chapter out of the same book. And let's say in that book, the author is describing how they have a one-hour morning commute. But let's also say that the author didn't give any more details about that, that they simply said a one-hour morning commute. They didn't indicate where they are in the country. They didn't indicate what their means of transportation is. They just said one-hour morning commute. What will likely happen is each of those people will add their own context to visualize what's going on. So the person in Los Angeles will probably visualize that as sitting in the 405, as sitting in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, feeling incredible amount of anger and frustration because all you're trying to do is go two miles up the road. That is how in LA we would picture that. Well, the person in Manhattan would have a completely different context. Likely, their version of commute wouldn't involve a car at all. It would probably be involved being part of a massive group of people trying to get on a subway or trying to get on a public bus. It would involve frustration because neither is ever running on time. It would, involve, uh, it would involve the pursuit that, for us, are we going into the valley or seeming valley, seeming valley in New York? It would be you're either going uptown or you're either going downtown. Where are you going? Now, in that example, do you see that without context, two different people could take the same phrase and come across with two radically different interpretations. And so context is king. I do not decide how the Bible should be interpreted. The Bible has decided how to be interpreted, and my job is to discover its context. And so this can sound intimidating, right? 
to discover the context of the Bible. But the truth of the matter is not only is it for you, not only do you have the Holy Spirit, but again, this is a lot easier than we give it credit for. And it begins with the first step. And so let me give you two, e- two practical steps to discover the biblical context. The first step is what we already talked about. It's observation. What I love about this is do you realize that the first step is not that you go get a specialized degree in biblical studies. If you want to begin to learn and discover the context of the Bible, the first step is to slow down and observe what is already there. What is amazing about the Bible is how much of its context it actually teaches you. What is amazing about the Bible is it tells you so much about their culture, about what's going on in society, about their struggles, about what it was like to be either a Jewish man, a Greek believer, whatever it may be. It's all contained within there. So for example, this week in your life group study, Michael's giving you the opportunity to look at Philippians 4.13, probably one of the most famous verses of the Bible. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. Now, not only is this one of the most famous verses of the entire Bible, it is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the entire Bible because it raises some interesting contextual questions. Is this verse saying that as Christ followers, we have no limits? Is this verse saying that literally there is no limits, there is nothing I can't do or succeed at? Is this verse implying, hey, as long as I trust God hard enough, I'm not going to fail? And so with that, is this verse saying that I failed because I didn't believe hard enough or because I didn't trust God hard enough? And there's many times when we apply this verse using one of those two points. And so in your uh, life group study this week, you're going to get an opportunity to discover the context of that verse and how Michael's asked you to do it is simply by reading the 10, 20 verses around it. It's amazing how quickly we see the context this verse is in. It's amazing how quickly we understand what the author was trying to say behind this verse when we take the time to simply observe what is around it. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the context is because you need to do your homework. (laughs) But observation, but observation is a huge first step towards discovering what context is. And with that, when I'm observing, remember I mentioned that part of observing is asking questions. And so one of the questions I begin asking myself is, what is the context of this? What don't I know? And I would make a note of something, and as I continue to read through that letter, I would be looking for explanations into this context. So let me give you an example. Let's go back to our passage. Philippians 1, let's go to verse 3. So I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Now let me stop right there. For me, that jumped out as a context question. What does Paul mean by his partnership in the gospel? What was understood? What was his partnership with these churches that he was starting? Did they travel with him? Did they help him write letters? Did they help him proclaim to nations that didn't believe? Did they, uh, did they financially support him? What is the context of that? Now, in this, I don't have an answer to this, so I would make a note of that and go, hey, I'd like to understand more of the backstory behind this. Continue reading. 
Verse six, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. So I stopped right there and there was another context question for me. I'm struck by Paul describing some of his experience as being in chains. And so I now ask another context question. What does that mean? Does Paul literally mean to be chained up? Does he mean to be tortured in any way? Does he mean that he was imprisoned? If so, why was he imprisoned? How did this happen? Where is there context for this? And so I would make a note of that and I would want to see if I can find that as I continue reading. And so again, It's not that I always have the answers, but it begins to raise up good interpretation questions. That's really what interpretation is all about. It's acknowledging the questions I have, and it's beginning to read with those questions in mind. So the first step is observation. Now the second step to begin to interpret the Bible well is what I call resources. These are people, places, books, different tools, online programs that help fill in context for us as we're looking to understand the Bible. Now for me, there's two key categories of resources. The first key category is what I call collective resources, meaning these are resources that we do together. So the first example of that, you're already doing it. Gold star for you, it's being here on the weekend service. This is something I've mentioned once before, but this is why Michael and I teach the way we do. We tend to teach a little bit longer than the average church. And the reason we do that is not because we love the sound of our voice, although there's probably an element of that in there. The reason why we teach a little bit longer is it is important for us in our teaching to teach you how to go and read the Bible. So we will take an extra 10 minutes and begin to explain context. We will take an extra 10 minutes and begin to make this make sense to understand what is going on culturally. What is going on historically? What is going on in the story of the Bible? Now, that is a collective tool we get together. Another collective tool is life group. That's what happens through our studies and through our leaders. We're learning how to see scripture, how to interpret it within context. Another tool we offer at Rocky Peak is what we call our essentials classes. These are classes you can take online through rockypeak.org at any point. These are classes that this summer we're going to offer two of them here on campus. And again, it's learning how to dig into the Bible deeper and have context. Another class we offer every, every, every like maybe six to eight weeks, or maybe longer than that, every couple of months, is Uh, Christianity 101, an awesome opportunity to be able to see who is God in context, what is the Bible in context. But then there's also individual tools, tools you can use on your own when you're not here to be able to to, uh, discover context And there's a ton of different tools. There's commentaries, there's biblical dictionaries, there's concordances, there's a lot of resources, but I wanna recommend one specific tool, something I've talked about before that I think is absolutely essential if you want to read the Bible in context, and it's there in your note sheet. My recommended resource is a study Bible. Now a study Bible simply is a Bible that has a few extra notes in it as you read it to be able to explain what con- with the context of what you're reading. And so let me show you a couple examples of this. Richard, would you throw the first slide up? So in most study Bibles, this is an example out of my study Bible in the letter of Philippians, before it goes into the book or the letter, what it'll do is it'll have maybe like a two to three page overview 
of the book or the letter you're about to read. And in this overview, what it gives you is it answers some of those who, what, when, where, and why questions. It tells you who wrote it or who we believe wrote it. It tells you who the original audience is. Up here, it tells you around what date, what time in history. It tells you what were some of the key themes, what were some of the purposes or issues being addressed in this. So Richard, go to the next slide. The second thing you'll commonly find in, in study Bibles are study notes. And so what'll be like at the top part, those are the verses of scripture in Philippians 1. The bottom part are notes that are simply giving you bite-sized insight into the context that are giving you bite-sized insight into the language that Paul is using, into what's going on in culture at the time. Another thing that the study notes do, do, do really well is that it correlates things, meaning if Paul is talking about a certain theme or a certain purpose, and that is elsewhere in the Bible, it often will point you to those other verses to show you the theme of this. Hey, Paul is talking about praying for these believers. We see this theme in Paul, so check out his letter to Ephesians, this verse, check out this as well. It's an awesome way to be able to see the Bible as a whole. Richard, go to the next one. A third thing often found in study Bibles is it'll have these little articles inside, again, that are just painting a clear picture as to what you're experiencing. So Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Philippi. In this article, it's a picture, which I love pictures. It's a picture of Philippi at the time of Paul. What this is doing is this is giving me a visual this is helping me picture what it was like to be the recipient of one of Paul's letters. Richard, thank you for that. And so a study Bible is an incredible tool to help you learn and experience context. You can buy a study Bible off Amazon pretty cheaply. You can buy study Bibles digitally off the app store of your choice. Study Bibles also come in a lot of different focuses. So you can get different study Bibles for your different stage of life. There are men's study Bibles, women's study Bibles. Those were pictures from my own study Bible. It's called the Cultural Background Study Bible that talks a lot about history and the culture at the time. Um, organizations such as he reads truth. She reads truth. They have great study Bible to talk more and more about the composition of the Bible. So you can find a lot of those there, but a study Bible would be a resource I highly recommend you get. So now that leads us to the third step. So we've observed, we've interpreted, and then the third step is application. And the goal of application is to apply the Bible to our daily living. I like that verse from James in your note sheet. Do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. This is what I would say is the crescendo of learning how to read the Bible. We don't read the Bible just so we have more knowledge. We don't read the Bible just so we have more facts on the subject. We read the Bible so that we can experience the transformation that God has for us. We observe well, we interpret well, so that we can clearly see how God wants to transform our core character. And so you see, you cannot separate these steps. They cannot stand on their own. Again, we observe to help us interpret so that we can now go and do. The purpose of the Bible is to transform our lives, to change the way we think, to change the way we act, to result in us being more and more like God's precious son, Jesus. And so with that, let's go back to Philippians 1. 
And looking at verses 9 through 11, what I'm going to do is I'm going to model this through how I interpret, how I am applying this, what the Lord is teaching me specifically through these final three verses. So, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so for me, as I was reading through this, as I apply all three steps, a couple of things happened. The first is that in observation, the word abound jumped out to me. Now, it jumped out to me because it's a unique word, because my vocabulary is not that vast. And so when I think about this, I can't think of a time I have ever used that word. And so that really jumped out at me. Then the second step is I needed to do interpretation, because I don't use abound. I don't fully know what it means. I might be able to guess, but I don't want to guess. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is open up a dictionary. And so I opened up a dictionary, Google, and then I Googled it, and it defined it simply that to abound in something is to multiply in it, is to grow and have more and more. And so looking back at that, this keeps jumping out at me. And again, I'm putting together all of these steps. What have I observed? The Apostle Paul is talking to Christ followers as well as to the leadership of this church in Philippi. And here at the beginning of his letter, he says that above all else, my main prayer for you is that you would abound more in the love of God, that the love of God would grow, would multiply, would overflow out of you. And so for me personally, I looked at that and I went before the Lord and I started to ask some key questions. God, am I a person who abounds in love? When people think of me, is that a characteristic that they would describe me as? As somebody who overflows with the love of God, as somebody who is growing that love, who prioritizes knowing that and experience that. And then God, in my time with him, began to make it specific and showed me categories of people to apply it with. He first took me to the people I love the most, my family, my friends, my church, and he began to reveal to me, how can I abound more in love with them? And one of the first things he revealed to me is my language language. See, one of my traps and temptations and ego is that I'm sarcastic by nature. I used to try to joke it off and argue that it was my spiritual gift, but the reality is my words hurt people. My words do not show love. And so the Lord is reminding me of this. Hey, are you abounding in love for you in your language? The other category the Lord took me to is the people that I don't love, the people that are difficult, the people I wouldn't call my enemies. And the Lord took me back to this passage and says, do you notice that the Apostle Paul did not put qualifiers on it? He did not say that my prayer is that you would abound in love for the people that love you, that you would abound in love for the people that love God, that you would abound in love for the people that you agree with and get along with. It says that you would abound in love. And so the Lord took me to some of these peoples or groups or organizations and began to ask, what does it look like to love them? And this is a longer journey, but again, it starts with your language. How do you disagree with an enemy? even somebody who is on the other side of God's will and still speak in love with that? How do you use your language to care about what is going on? And so again, the Lord is using this to me because as I observe, as I interpret, now I have the opportunity to apply this. Now I like how Dallas Willard puts it there in your note sheet. 
We will be spiritually safe in our use of the Bible if we follow a simple rule. Read with a submissive attitude. Read with a readiness to surrender all you are. Would you underline that, put a box around this? Does this not change the game completely for how we read scripture? Read with a readiness to surrender all you are, all of your plans, opinions, possessions, positions. Study scripture as intelligently as possible with all available means, but never study merely to find the truth and especially not just to prove something. Subordinate your desire to find the truth to your desire to do it, to act it out. Now there's gonna be times when this is easy and there's gonna be times when this is difficult. And next week, we're gonna talk about the heart and the importance of obeying the word of God. But with that, that's the crescendo of our observation and our interpretation is so that we can then apply it to our lives. Amen? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on out. And as we wrap up our service uh, with a couple more songs, the first thing that we want to do is we want to do something special. And Rocky Peak, as we've been talking about this, I have one last question for you. Are you ready to get to work? in the most joyful way possible? Are you ready to roll up your sleeves and are you ready to do the work of reading God's word to you, of experiencing his presence, of experiencing his transformation through it? And for many of us, again, the voice in our head has been one of intimidation, has been one of fear, but the truth of the matter is today, God is reminding us that his Holy Spirit is our courage. And so what we wanna do is we wanna give you an opportunity to reflect. The band is gonna sing a song over you and there's some key themes in the song that I love. One, there's a line that gets repeated over and over, and I paraphrase, all of who you are, Jesus, is who I want to be. And for what we've been talking about, Jesus loved the word. Jesus believed in the transformational power of the word. It was essential to him. And so let the Lord speak to us into how do we become more like Jesus in this area. Another theme that the song brings out many times is this theme of God conquering our fears. We do not need to be intimidated by God's word. We have his Holy Spirit. The word is for you. And so listen, reflect. At a certain point, the band is gonna invite you to stand and sing with them. But in this moment, just receive. Be in the posture of receiving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Jesus, your word is not an obligation. Your word is not a chore. Your word is, is God-breathed. Your presence and authority is in your word. It is there to transform our very being, to transform the way we think, to transform the way we act. And as we go into this time of reflection, we are ready to listen to what you have to say to us individually about our relationship with the Lord. Father, speak. We know you're speaking. We are ready to listen. Thank you for your word. In your son's name, amen.